Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Crimes, Killers, Cults. And beer. And beer. <laughs> um, that's Todd. And that's Bill. And that's Vic. And that's Vic, <laughs> our special guest today. Yes. We have, um, this is episode 50, and we got a good one for you for, yep, yep. for that milestone. We have um, true, true crime author comedy author so he's gonna fit right in with us <laughs> um vic ferrari he's written several books um yeah yeah and i bought one of them and i, I just love the title of it it's called dickheads and debauchery <laughs> yes <laughs> and, that's great and um he's a retired new york city uh, detective and he decided that once he retired that he wanted to get into writing and he put his own flavor in it and his books are at least I've, the, what I've read so far in the in dickheads and debauchery I love it so I'm, <laughs> I'm definitely going to get the other books too for my little true crime library right <laughs> so, so how's it going Vic? I'm doing great and I want to thank you uh, Bill and Toddzilla for inviting me on your show it's a pleasure we're, we're happy to have you oh yeah thank so. you very much so uh, let's just jump right in. Um, yes. Just go ahead and just go ahead and give us a you know a little bit of a backstory on on you and you know who who you are, what your books are, what you you know. Sure. My name is Vic Ferrari. I'm a retired 20 year member of the New York City Police Department. I was born and raised in the Bronx, lower middle class kid. Uh, dad was a butcher. Mom was a housewife. Um, at the age of five, I knew I wanted to become a New York City police officer around the corner from the local movie theater when my mother was taking me to see Herbie the Love Bug or one of the Disney matinees. I would run up to the police cars that were around the corner from nice. the uh, the movie theater and look in and look at the equipment and watch the cops outside and talk to them. And every boy is fixated on that gun and the nightstick. By age 10, my friends and I used to sneak into the local post office and steal FBI wanted posters off the wall and run around the neighborhood doing manhunts would be in the local deli with, you know, a wanted poster looking at some poor guy waiting to get a sandwich like this could be this fucker might have robbed a bank in Louisiana. By 20, I took the police exam. <laughs> By 21, I was in the police academy and I had a wonderful 20 year Career with the NYPD, I worked in various units. I was I worked in DUI, I worked in anti-crime, plainclothes unit, going after robberies in progress, burglaries, pickpockets. I worked in the narcotics division in the 90s, and my last 10 years I was a detective in the auto crime division, which anything with chop shops, exporting stolen vehicles out of the country, changing vehicle identification numbers on cars for resale, a lot of mafia cases. I, after my 20-year career, I, well, I said that was enough. I retired down to Florida, and I've written six books, four of which are a behind-the-scenes look at the New York City Police Department. Awesome. Cool. <clears throat> and I'm into the, you know, I'm, I'm into dickheads and debauchery. Although I kind of wish I had started with, um, with the, the one about the dark side of the New York City Police Department. I think it was just. Just tell us the titles of your books and where where they can find them. Well, Dickheads and Debauchery and Other Ingenious Ways to Die was a comedy. It was my first introduction into, into self-publishing and writing. And everybody said, you know, that's a funny book. But the book you should write is your experiences and stories about the NYPD. So my first NYPD book I wrote is called uh, NYPD Through the Looking Glass Stories from behind, uh, NYPD through the looking glass stories from inside America's largest police department. That started selling. I wrote another behind the scenes book entitled The NYPD's Flying Circus, Cops, Crime, and Chaos. Then I wrote a book about my 10 years in the auto crime division, which is entitled Grand Theft Auto, the NYPD's auto crime division. And my last NYPD book is called NYPD Law and Disorder. Then I took a break from writing about the NYPD and I wrote a book about growing up in the Bronx and having to attend Catholic high school. And it's called Confessions of a Catholic High School Graduate, which is basically me being a little son of a bitch between the ages of 13 and 18 <laughs> and how I turned my life around and became a cop. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. Um, and they, they find them on Amazon under Vic Ferrari. Yeah, if you go to the Amazon book section, just oh, type yeah, in my name, Vic mine. Ferrari, <laughs> and all my books come up. They're ten dollars paperbacks and two ninety nine ebook downloads. Yeah, and cool. just to save face here, hold on a second. Sure. All right. <laughs> just so you know, I ain't bullshit. No, I believe you. Why would you lie? <laughs> 
I think I'm a well, pretty good judge I of don't character. Know. Some some people some people <laughs> Right? I would yeah. I would hope so. <laughs> well that Yeah, that, that's awesome. And um so you know, before we get into you know, before we get into like you know, your tell all stories and everything, I just got a, a couple of questions sure. before before we just basically say the floor is yours. Um you know, when you, when you're in auto recovery, did you um, did any of your finds ever lead to like the um, the capture of a, like a known serial killer or anything like that? Like, did you have any ties to like the the Berkowitz case or? Well, you got to remember, David. I I have stories about David Berkowitz, but David, Ber- you got to remember, so I'm not that old. I'm in my mid fifties now. David Berkowitz was off the playing field ten years before I went into the police academy. So. But I got a couple of funny David Berkowitz stories, so I'll just I'll tell you a couple of quick ones. Early in my career, I had to bring a narcotic seizure up to the lab. And in the old days, the, uh, the lab was on the sixth floor of the, or seventh floor of the police academy. So I went up there with this box of narcotics with my supervisor, and we dropped it off. And when you got off the elevator, to the left, I think, was the lab, and to the right was our ballistics section where recovered firearms, they fire them into a drum and they pull the slug up and then they try to match it to other crimes and different guns and so forth. So while we leave, waiting for the elevator and in the hallway, there's like this display case that looks like the Boy Scouts made, like some kid's father built a display case on the wall with plexiglass and stained wood. And I'm just looking at it, waiting for the elevator. And there's all different guns mounted to this wall behind plexiglass. And I look, and I'm looking at the Son of Sam's 44 uh, Charter Arms gun up there on the wall. And I'm like, holy shit. Like, no one else would ever see this or even know that it's up here. And while I'm admiring that, next to that gun is the gun that killed John Lennon. Oh. So it was kind (laughs) of wild just to, you know, stumble upon that. You know what I mean? And in the old days before things were computerized, um to get rap sheets or criminal records of subjects, you had to go to one police plaza. I forget what floor it was on. And then you had to go bring in a written request and it would go in the back and you'd be there anywhere from 10 minutes to two hours. And then a clerk would come back with someone's rap sheets. And one day while I was waiting on that, they had David Berkowitz's rap sheet, um, his fingerprint card, and I think arrest report mounted to the wall. So they were very proud of that. Uh, a detective who I worked with, bought a condominium in his old building. So now this is years, this is, you know, 10, 15 years after David Berkowitz has already been upstate. And what had happened was after he was captured, you had, and this is even before the internet, but you had all these people that were interested in the son of Sam. So you would get people that would go to this building where he lived and steal shit out of the lobby or take photos. So that was annoying to the people that lived there because they're like, all right, we just got this asshole out of the building and now you've got all these fucking ghouls coming around wanting to take pictures and steal shit out of the lobby. So what the Homeowners Association (laughs) did was they lobbied the city of Yonkers. I think the address was 42 Pine Street. And what they did was they lobbied to get the address changed to 35 Pine Street to throw people off so they would stop coming and fucking around with the building. (laughs) But that created another problem. So one day I'm sitting across from this other detective who I'm still friends with to this day, and I'm I'm busting his balls about buying the condo in the building, and do you hear the dogs at night tormenting you and all this shit? And he goes, I'll tell you who torments me. I go, who's that? He goes, my fucking mailman. I said, why? He goes, because he keeps getting the address wrong and delivering my mail across the street because it threw off the post office after they changed the address. <laughs> and my last David Berkowitz story oh. is my old partner <laughs> That's funny. was a homicide. After we had worked together, I, I went to organized crime. He went to the detective squad route. He later became a highly decorated homicide detective for years. And uh, him and his partner had to go up to Sullivan County Correctional Facility in upstate New York to pull some guy out who was already serving time for homicide, bring him back down to the Bronx and charge him with another homicide. And uh, while they're up there waiting for this guy to get processed so they can bring him back down to the Bronx, the warden is just giving him a tour. 
And he's like, you know, this is our facility and blah, 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 blah. And my old partner's a curious guy. And he asked the warden, he goes, isn't David Berkowitz up here, the son of Sam? And the warden goes, yeah. And he just kind of glosses over it and just keeps telling him about the facility. So my partner's curious. He brings it up again. So the warden goes, okay, I think I know what you want to see. Take a walk. So they follow the warden to this jail cell. No one's in it. And they walk in and it's the son of Sam's jail cell. And my partner said everything was symmetrical in his cell. He had fan mail like five feet high, like neatly stacked, like fucking people are still writing this guy, right? Damn. And he says while he's in his jail cell, wow. he notices this pudgy middle-aged guy outside the cell like, Warden, Warden, what's, what's wrong? Why are you in my cell? And he goes, David, just calm down. He goes, these detectives are from Bronx Homicide. They just wanted to see your cell. And he said, Berkowitz is staring at them, and they're staring at him. And he goes, well, you guys were a little young to be here for anything I did up in the Bronx years ago. That's all been taken care of. And he said it was eerie. And he said, yeah, okay. <laughs> and they left, and they took their guy, and they brought him back down to the Bronx. But, uh, yeah, those are my David Berkowitz, the son of Sam stories. As far as me dealing with wow. serial killers. Now, you got to remember, I worked in organized crime, so it was a little different. But I did work on a case right. where... There was a subject, it, it was an international auto theft ring. We had uh, Chinese nationals in Brooklyn, and what they were doing was they were paying a Jamaican middleman to facilitate the, uh, the theft of between 25 and 30 stolen Audi A6s a month. So the Jamaican middleman was paid $5,000 a car. He would farm out the orders to these car thieves, and he would pay them between 500 and 1,000, depending on their stature in the crew. They'd steal these cars, they'd bring them out to Brooklyn, they'd park them on the street, they'd let them cool off, they'd bring them into this warehouse where you had Chinese nationals working, they would drive two stolen Audis per shipping container, they would let the air out of the tires so the car would sit low, then they would build a wooden platform above it, and then they would hoist one or two more cars and get them into the container so they could load between three to four stolen Audis per shipping container. Once the, the containers were closed, they had a shipping Ooh. company come. The shipping company would take the, take the container out to Newark, New Jersey. They were put on trains, railed across the United States, and then they were put on shipping containers at Long Beach, California, and then they were shipped to Shanghai. So while we've, we're on multiple wiretaps, we've got Asian wiretaps, we've got Spanish wiretaps, we quickly figure out that our thieves are in the murder-for-hire business. And... There was like 10 or 15 of these guys that were thieves, but five or six of them all had bodies on them. But one of the guys, this guy Fausto Gonzalez, he probably killed between 13 and 15 people. So, I mean, that's the closest thing to a serial oh, killer. Yeah. And he killed people for a variety of reasons. In addition that, that's to- That's a serial killer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, well, he killed people for money. He got paid He got paid for a couple of hits. Another, A couple of people he killed, or at least one- they wrote, what they would do is they would ride around Manhattan with, on their motorcycles. And if they saw a guy on a bike that they wanted to steal, they would pull up to him at a light and surround him. So everybody thinks it's just a bunch of guys on motorcycles. And this guy, Fausto, would get off the back of another guy's bike, point a gun at the guy and say, get the fuck off the bike. And if you didn't get off the bike fast enough, Fausto would kill you. So there was this guy that owned a club in Lower Manhattan, and the, and the homicide went unsolved for years because they figured, well, he owned a club, maybe it was something with drugs or organized crime. It wasn't. The poor guy was just riding around Manhattan on his motorcycle, and Fausto, he didn't get off the bike fast enough for Fausto when he killed him. But uh, yeah, the, uh, I would call Fausto a serial killer because just of the amount of people he killed for a variety of reasons. Yeah. Well, what what is your thought on you know could be like the murder for hire, like the you know Kuklinski and and whatnot? A lot of people will say, well, Kuklinski wasn't a serial killer. I say bullshit. He was a serial killer for hire. I'll tell you. Okay, so I got a couple of stories about him. Richard Kuklinski right. lived in Dumont, nice. New Jersey, down the block from my aunt. Oh. So, I mean, I sometimes I feel like a higher functioning Forrest Gump. I mean, if you live in the city and you're <laughs> in the five boroughs, you're going to bump into and know people, right? So. Yeah. My brother and I used to play in that neighborhood. We never saw him or anything, but when he got busted, like it was a big deal to my aunt and all the neighbors because it's like, oh, I remember that guy. I mean, I was a kid when that happened. And I've spoken to people that worked on that case from New Jersey State Police and stuff years ago. 
Kuklinski did kill people, but nowhere near. The problem with Kuklinski is he was kind of like that Henry Lee Lucas. The the more he, the more he did it for attempt he 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 bragged and took credit for hits that he never did. He oh, was really? involved with a bunch of guys. He he ran a crew of guys that was stealing Corvettes. They were doing bur- high end burglaries, and whatever he he was a wheeler dealer, and he would sell whatever he get his hands on for money. The problem was when one, when one, when he would believe that one of his guys were weak or subject to flipping on law enforcement, you know, you know, flipping, he would take them out. He probably, mm-hmm. I mean, he was more dangerous with his inner circle. You know what I mean? Like if you pissed him off or something and he got the, it's like anybody else. If they, if, if someone has that mindset and you piss them off and they get the opportunity to whack you, yeah, they'll take it. There was guys in the mob like that. Like most mobsters, there's a rule. You don't fuck with the cops and the cops don't play out of bounds with you. But were there guys in the mafia that if they knew where you lived and, and there was that opportunity where they didn't think that they would get caught, would they try to hurt you or kill you? Yeah, absolutely. There was a handful of them that would do that. I, I never knew that Kuklinski, we haven't covered Kuklinski yet. Um, we haven't covered Berkowitz either, but um, I, I, I didn't know that he was basically a confession guy, and it's ironic that you brought up Henry Lee Lucas because we just recorded him <laughs> a couple days ago. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, that'll be the next episode that we release, and then that'll be followed by this one that we're doing yep. now. But, um, but yeah, that that's interesting about Kuklinski because I had no idea that he was you know full of shit. Well, I mean, I thought, don't was, get me I thought the stories about him were true. Killed. I mean. I think they, they know for a fact five or six guys and you want to throw another couple of shrimp on the Barbie, maybe, maybe up to 10, you know, but he just, it, once he got, once they did that HBO special 30 something years ago, right. Then, then the story started getting a little, little wilder. And then the, uh, an author, I can't think of his name. He since died. He wrote a book about him. And then the stories just got crazy about him taking people to caves in Pennsylvania and videotaping them with the rats eating them, eating them. I mean, the story's just got grander and grander and grander. And I think the whole narrative with him fell apart was he was linked to the DeMeo crew and the Gemini Lounge out in Brooklyn. Now, those guys kill more people than cancer. And there, there, is, there is information that he did purchase a gun from one of them. But then after he got caught, he, he claims that he killed Roy DeMeo. And the reality is no one was going to kill Roy DeMeo unless you were in the inner crew. You couldn't have gotten within a mile of Roy DeMeo. So for him to say, you know, he was just like a, he was like oh, a wow. tambourine player on a band. You know what I mean? He, was he dangerous? Yeah. But was he <laughs> the be-all, end-all badass? No. That's, That's cool. interesting. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, so uh, one, one, more, one more quick question because I – yeah, I, I didn't mean to trip no, you up no, about the Berkowitz thing. I I don't think I was meant to talk about Berkowitz, <laughs> but but it was awesome that she had the stories about him because that was cool. Mm-hmm. But um, but one other person that I wanted to ask you about was somebody that we have covered is Larry Ray. Were you ever involved with any of the dealings with that piece of shit? Larry Ray, where was he arrested? He's the- not a serial killer. He was that. Where? New York City. During what time period? Um. He, I think he was arrested in 2010 or something like that. But he was um but he was the guy that orchestrated that teenage sex cult with his daughter at Sarah Lawrence Sarah Lawrence University. That sounds familiar. Yeah, he was um I mean this guy was this guy was a total piece of shit. We did a two-part episode on him. And mm-hmm. um but I, I was just wondering if maybe you had any any you know any any top ties or maybe inside information about him. Well, I retired in 2007, and Sarah Lawrence is up in Westchester County. That's one county above New York City. Um, was any of the homicides in the five boroughs? They they had an apartment in New York City. Ah, okay. Okay. Well, I was I was just curious. No, that doesn't ring a bell. Well, unfortunately. probably good because I <laughs> the shit that he put those kids through was just it was nightmarish, and you know I I, <laughs> I wanted to strangle the guy by the end of the. By the end of our episode, <laughs> we both did. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, there's a percentage of the population that just—I mean—they get off on hurting other people. Yeah, and he definitely did. And he also liked to take video, and he would. There's video of him 
doing all of this shit to these girls and everything. Jesus and it's just, terrible. it's just, like, I want to, well, yeah. Um, okay, well, that's pretty, that's pretty much all I have as far as, you know, like, now we're just going to turn the floor over to you and <laughs> let her rip. <laughs> <laughs> There was something I wanted to ask, sure. but I forgot what it was. Now, if I remember, I'll ask it later. Well, what do you guys want to hear? I mean, what uh, kind of stories are you interested in? Well, we we are a true crime podcast, although a uh, crazy off the rails one, but we're still <laughs> we're still true we're still true crime. So, I mean, that. What do you want to hear? You want to hear homicide stories? You want to hear morgue stories? Homicide. Oh yeah. All right. So when you're a uniform I mean, member, you know anything you can talk yeah, about? Sure, yeah, sure. Yeah, I can like. talk about anything. Um, when you're a uniform member, you're just a precinct cop, right? You don't. You never know how the day is going to shake out. I mean, you could go into work saying you're doing a seven to three, seven in the morning, three at night. Yeah, I, I got to do this after work, and it's a slow day. And then the next thing you know, the shit hits the fan. Well, this is um, probably early '90s. It was weeknight. October, very slow night, it was raining out, and the radio's dead, and a domestic violence comes over. And uh, the dispatcher gives it to a radio car, and like I said, it was slow, so another radio car says, yeah, we'll, we'll back them up. A couple of seconds later, the dispatcher comes over and goes, I'm getting multiple calls on this. So my partner and I said, we're going to go. So now you got three cars going. So the first, the, the, the first radio car that gets there, they pull up. It was a garden apartments, like three stories, three or four stories. They pull up on the side of the building, not in the front. And when they get out of the car, they hear screaming coming out a window. So you had fire escapes. So these two cops are young. They decide to climb the fire escape in the rain to see who's screaming in the window. They get up there, and what they see is there's a woman on the floor, and there's a guy above her with a kitchen knife, and he's sawing her head off. Oh, So they start screaming into the radio. So we start rushing over there, right? Trying not to get into an accident in the rain. We pull up in front of the building and we hear six, eight, ten shots go off. We put over shots fired. We were hit the hallway. As we're going up the stairs, there's a young kid coming down the stairs and he's screaming, he's killing my mother, he's killing my mother. We get up to the door and we're pounding on the door and we're trying to kick it in. And then we hear our two coworkers inside the apartment screaming at the top of their lungs, don't shoot, don't shoot, because they don't want friendly fire coming through the door. Right. They opened the door, and it was like something out of a horror movie because after the gunshots went off, it was like someone lit a pack of firecrackers in the apartment. It's all, you know, gunpowder. And as we're walking around, your feet are just sloshing around, sticking in the blood. There's just a a huge amount of blood on the ground. What had happened was while he was sawing this woman's head off, they start banging on the window trying to get into the apartment. He turns around and goes, oh, you want some of this? Grabs the knife, charges them, throws open the window. And when he goes out, the, tries to get them with the, with the knife, back then we had 38s, which packs a punch. They hit him a bunch of times with the 38 and sent him back into the apartment where he died. And uh, it was a boyfriend-girlfriend situation. He lost his mind. I don't know if she was going to leave him or whatever, but he lost his mind. He took a hammer and destroyed everything in that apartment, including putting a hole in her head. Oh, and, uh, you know, I've told the story a million times, but the thing I will never forget is, like, her eyes were wide open and her mouth was wide open. Like, the last gasp of her was screaming. And uh, th- those two cops, oh. I mean, they went through a lot of trauma with that. I mean, it, it bothered them for a very long time. I can, I can imagine. imagine. Yeah. Wow. Now you, I mean, there, there, there's in, in my opinion, in my knowledge, or in my opinion, there's only been one person to capture that look, in like in movies, and that would be Al Pacino at the end of Godfather Three. <laughs> when yeah. uh, when his daughter not my favorite killed. Godfather, but yeah. No, not mine either. But that's just what, when you said that the eyes were wide open, the mouth was. Well, Pacino too, at the end of uh, Carlito's way. Yeah, that's yeah. true. <laughs> Benny Blanco from the Bronx kills him on the uh, on the plat uh, on the, the Penn Station platform. Yeah. <laughs> hey, I remembered what I wanted to ask sure. because I don't really get an opportunity to ask somebody, but um. What do you think about like all those police procedural shows, you know, like CSI and NCIS and all that? I mean, I know a lot of it's like, like sped up for. It's nonsense. So I, I could speak to how the NYPD works. 
And now I'm retired now. Mm. Keep in mind, I'm retired 16 years, but the way it used to be. So at a homicide scene, the NYPD has crime scene unit and it's detectives that have a shitload of training. And they're, the, they're not civilians, they're detectives. And they go in, they photograph, preserve mm. evidence, dust for fingerprints. There's different methods for different surfaces for fingerprints. Those for heavy crimes, rapes, homicides, some type of big time burglary. Then you have just for like, you know, regular burglaries in a house or auto theft. In the old days, some of the precincts that would have a lot of these types of crimes, they would have a print car. So it would be one or two cops in a car and they would respond. That was usually the four to 12 shift because people come home and they find their house has been burglarized. So they would drive around and throw the pixie dust all over the place and then lift the latent prints with a piece of tape and put it on a piece of glass and submit it to, to our fingerprint section that would feed it into a machine. Um, then probably around the late 90s, early 2000s, they didn't want to overwork uh, our crime scene unit and they realized that the print guys maybe really weren't as good as they thought they were. So each borough had an evidence collection team which is, again, not civilians, it's cops. Or, and they, I guess they can become detectives mm -hmm. after a while. And they would go out on the burglaries and whatever, you know, as long as it wasn't something heavy. You know what I mean? As far as a homicide or a rape. Right. Yeah. Yeah, because in, um, <clears throat> in CSI, you know, it's just like they find a body at 6 o'clock in the morning and it's the, the entire case is solved by 5 o'clock in the evening and go to the bar and grab right, a Let beer. me tell you how it works. <laughs> let me tell you how it works when someone dies in New York City. So, say for argument's sake, homicide or, or not a homicide, but let's just say for argument's sake, Mrs. Johnson hasn't been heard from in three days. So the super, the building opens up the door or the daughter comes home and opens the door and Mrs. Johnson is dead in her bed, right? Someone's going to call 911. A radio right. call is going to show up. Radio call is going to get there and go, yep, she's dead. They're going to call EMS. Even though it's obvious she's dead, there's a procedure. EMS comes and says, yeah, she's dead. And they leave and you get their information. Sergeant's going to come. Okay, let's look around without touching too many things, right? Then you're going to call the detectives. Detectives are going to come and they're going to say, they're going to start looking around. They're going to look at if it doesn't look like it's suspicious, you know what I mean? It just looks like an 80-something-year-old woman dropped dead in her bed. They're going to go into the medicine cabinet. They're going to get the name of the doctor. They're going to look at the medication. You're going to take a list of the medications. You're going to start, If it's during the day, you're going to call the doctor's office. Hi, we have one of your patients. And he's going to say, yeah, she's had a bad heart for many years and blah, 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 blah. It doesn't look suspicious. The detectives are going to leave if it doesn't look suspicious. And then you have to wait. The two cops that responded have to, it's called sitting on a DOA. And basically you're going to be there until the medical examiner gets there. The medical examiners, they're overworked. There's people dropping dead in New York for natural, unnatural reasons in the five boroughs. You could be there 20 minutes to 10 hours waiting on this guy. And the apartment stinks. That shit's getting into your clothes and your hair, depending mm -hmm. on the size of the person, how long ago they expired. The old timers taught me a trick. Once you know that it's not a homicide, you go and look for you go look for coffee grinds. You put them in a pot and you burn it on the stove to permeate the apartment with coffee grinds, the smell of coffee, as opposed to this dead person. Medical examiner is going to show up. Makes sense. And I've I've got stories like I've had a medical examiner showing up with a, drinking a cup of coffee, eating a slice of pizza. <laughs> There's a dead guy laying on the floor. And he'll look around and go, yeah, all right. If if he if the medical examiner thinks it should go a step further, he's gonna call for the morgue wagon. You still gotta sit there until some van pulls up with these two ghouls that are gonna take the body out of there to the morgue. If the medical examiner says, nah, this this is bullshit, this is not a suspicious death, then the family can call the funeral home and make arrangements or sometimes if there's nobody to take the body it goes to the morgue and then what happens is after a couple of days that body goes out to potter's field that's a wild thing that no you should look into that there's an island i'm actually writing a story about it there's an island between the bronx and long island it's called hearts island 
I think in the 50s and 60s, they used to house Ajax missiles there in case the invasion of the Soviet Union. Oh, it's wow. been a potter's field there since the 1800s. There's probably over a million people buried there. Oh, wow. And what they do is, what they did, I don't know if they still do it, but you guys have heard of Rikers Island, right? New York mm-hmm. City jail. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So what they do is once or twice a week, they have a ferry. And they'll bring inmates, trustees, guys that are going to be there less than a year, not guys looking at heavy time that are going to go take off off the reservations, guys that, you know, failure to pay child support or bullshit. They're not, gonna, they're right. not going anywhere. They don't want to leave. They'll, they put these inmates on a ferry with pine boxes. And then what they do is they bring them out to this island and then with a bulldozer, they bury them eight deep, I think it is. And they get assigned numbers. But, I mean, there's millions oh. of people out there. There's actually, um, I think there's a couple of documentaries on that place. It's a, it's a wild place. Is it yeah. haunted? I'm sure it is. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, we'll have to look into that. Or, or at least I will. I mean, I'll look into it just out of personal interest because that's... That's crazy. I mean, I understand <laughs> that that has to happen. If nobody claims a body, it's got to go somewhere. That's crazy. I mean, that, that's what I mean. That, it's not crazy that it's happened. It's the number that you said. That's crazy. That's like, <laughs> well, yeah. think about New York. I mean, first of all, you have a tremendous po- homeless population, right? Yeah. True. And some of these people, I mean, look at what's happening now with, with the immigration crisis. So let's say for argument's sake, you have one of these illegal aliens that come in and they're living in New York and they drop dead of a heart attack. Their fingerprints are going to come back to nobody. There's no one going to claim them. They go to Hearts Island. Yeah. Wow. That's crazy. And the NYPD has Uh, what's called a missing persons unit. So those are detectives that usually, before they became NYPD members, they worked in funeral homes. They were morticians. We got guys that used to be more, uh, guys and girls that used to be morticians that become, they go to work in the missing persons unit. And what they do is unclaimed bodies at the morgue, they go down there. And then they um, they inject saline into their fingers to kind of puff them up, and then they roll their prints, and then they submit them to find out who they are, and you know find out a are they missing, or b find loved ones that say, hey, listen, I know your uncle went off the reservation 15 years ago. He died in Lower Manhattan. Do you, do you want to take the body? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> I just I have um, I have a, another sure. question. <clears throat> yeah, I, I'm just curious. What is your um, take on like non nonviolent drug offenses and stuff like that? Like people in jail for pot or, or stuff well, like no that. No one's going to jail for I pot. I mean, no one's ever gone to jail in New York <laughs> well, City. No well, one's ever know. gone to jail for pot. If I worked in well, narcotics, just in, if we caught a guy general. selling weed, he would go through the system, and when he saw the judge, it would either get dismissed. Or he'd pay a fifty or a hundred dollar fine. So nobody, no one's ever gone really. Now I'm not talking. In my day, I got hired in '87. No one's gone to jail right. for selling weed. And I mean, mm. unless you're selling fucking duffel bags of it. In my day, no one was going to jail for weed. And now, <laughs> no one's going to jail for anything in New York. So, I mean, I can speak to what goes on in New York City. Yeah. God. So basically, the the lawlessness of the pre Giuliani time in New York City is basically coming back. Is that is that it's what you're back. saying? It's it, back. It's back, and it's it's. I mean, I haven't been in New York in a while, but from just looking at the crime statistics and videos, yeah, it's 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 the seventies again. Oh wow. But yeah, because I've listened to a couple of podcasts that you were on, and yeah, you, know, you speak highly of Giuliani, and I I I hold him in pretty high regard as well. And, um, you know, that, that, that just must have been a hell of a time to be, a, you know, in law enforcement up there. It was because I was there before Giuliani, during and after. So I kind of got to see, you know, three different styles. And Giuliani obviously worked the best. <laughs> Giuliani did work the best. I'll give Bloomberg credit. I mean, Bloomberg was smart enough. I don't think he agreed with a lot of the things that Giuliani did, but he was smart enough to realize it worked. Right. And basically kept in place the same protocols and everything else of Giuliani. Um, I, I retired before uh, Bloomberg did his third term, and I think that's when he started changing things a little bit. But the two terms while I was there, or a term and a half while I was there, I mean, uh, he was a good mayor. 
So, um, so those changing policies, is, did that have anything to do with why, you know, like what made you just wake up one day and say, you know what, I'm done with this shit? No, no, things were fine when I was there. It was just 20 years is enough. You oh, know okay. what I mean? And I yeah. was in the same office for 10 years. I was the old guy at 41 years old. I was the old guy in the office. And, you know, you get younger supervisors with different ideas. And I saw what happened to guys that hang, hung around too long. You know what I mean? Everybody outlives their usefulness. So I said, you know what? I think it's just time to go and do something else. As much as I loved it and enjoyed it, it was just time to do something else. Okay. Right on. That's cool. Um, so we did a we did a homicide. We touched on, you know, Giuliani and the the crime and and whatnot. So you're, it sounds like sounds like your baby was the was the um, the vehicle recovery with organized crime. Sounds like sounds like that was sounds like you had the most fun with that. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I I I, I had a great career. I mean, I was in plain clothes fifteen out of twenty years. I grew up in a neighborhood. We had probably more car thieves per capita in my neighborhood than anywhere else in the United States. I worked in a gas station as a kid, so there were always guys driving through there with stolen cars looking to sell you the car or parts. I knew what to look for. So even when I was a young patrolman, I was always getting into car chases because I knew what to look for. <laughs> and then a mentor of mine taught me everything you wanted to know about vehicle identification numbers, where they're hidden on cars, how they restamp them, how they cut out firewalls and re-weld and tack weld a new firewall in and all sorts of shit. So in addition to be able to spot and pick off the garden variety car thief, I was good at, if I pulled somebody over, I could tell if the VIN number didn't match the car because I could read the VIN number. So, you know, people would change VIN numbers on stolen cars to keep them. You know, you got a stolen car that's got a salvage VIN number in the window that comes back to a car that was wrecked 10 years ago, and now it's on this guy's car. You have to find the confidential VIN number, and then it'll come back stolen from another jurisdiction or whatever. And then you lock them up, and then you try to find out who sold him the stolen car and where these cars are getting. We call it tagged. Or, you know, we went after the chop shops and the car thieves. Yeah, it was a great career. That's cool. So so the, the VIN numbers, I would have... You know, obviously, like if you, it's not just random numbers. You've no, got it's a like, formula. You know, the the one is going to mean like the, the yeah. yeah. It's like that with, with guitar serial numbers too. So yeah, it's like it, like it, it, I, it, I even think the paint code for the cars in the on VIN some number. cars. Yeah. Yes, not on all, but so but it, yes, on some of them. Sometimes yeah. the engine number, sometimes, uh, and, and it just depends. But you're right, though. It's there's different things. What type of engines in it? Is it a base? Is it a, is it a, is it a nicer model? Yeah. So you mentioned police chases. Let's hear some of that. <laughs> yeah. Well, the dirty secret in the NYPD <laughs> is, I mean, when I was active, they didn't want us chasing stolen cars. They only really wanted us getting involved. That, that, well, they never wanted us getting involved in chases. But the only time it was approved upon was for a violent felony, a robbery, a homicide, a burglary. But the reality is, we all chased. But. If, God forbid, a civilian got hurt, the bad guy got seriously hurt or killed, or you wrecked a police car, they're going to cut your balls off. So you had to be careful. You had to weigh you know, the situation and circumstances. You might not want to chase somebody at 3, 4 o'clock in the afternoon when schools are getting out. And the bad guys knew this. Um, but if you caught somebody and no one was hurt, no harm, no foul, no one was looking to take your job, uh, a funny car chase, and I, I was involved in a lot of them, but a funny one was one day, it was three of us in a car. We were in an unmarked car up in the west end of the Bronx, and we're in a Home Depot parking lot, and I see this Dodge Caravan with its windows rolled down. Now, nobody leaves their windows rolled down in the Bronx. So we pass it. I'm in the back seat. I run the plate. Comes back stolen. I tell the guy sitting in the front seat, I go, hey, make a U-turn. That, that, that Dodge Caravan over there is stolen. By the time they come around the parking lot, the car's rolling. I'm like, oh, fuck. <laughs> so the guy comes out of the Home Depot parking lot, and he goes up on Gun Hill Road, and he's at a light. And once he gets past that light, he's getting on I-95, major thoroughfare. So we're going to follow him. And we're, we're in, we're, you know, we had this, uh, what were we driving? I think it was a Ford Escort or something, or a Ford Taurus. We were in plain clothes, and we're looking at him, and he looks in the mirror, and he looks in the mirror again, and his eyes go, bing. He sees three white guys in an unmarked car behind him. Steps on the <laughs> gas, rams like four cars, and gone. 
tackle that motherfucker. So he gets away. Oh, wow. So this is on I-95? What's that? Yeah, down, yeah, going uh, south on I-95. So I was pissed, and I said, I'm going to catch this motherfucker. My partner goes, what, are you kidding me? We lost him. He's gone. Don't, don't give it a second thought. <laughs> Go back to the office. I pull the arrest report. I see that the car was stolen a week before across the street. There's only two types of people that hold on to a stolen car more than a week. Kids, teenagers, or drug addicts. Mm. Teenagers hold on to a stolen car because they don't know any better and it becomes their car. They're going to pick up their girlfriend. They're driving by the school being cool. Junkies will do it because they can commit other crimes with the car. They can shoot up and get high in the car and just park somewhere. and know It becomes like theirs. Right. So... What I did was I checked the car for summonses and I saw it got parking tickets all around that neighborhood. I go, he's around. So I, our, our office was next door to Vice. I swapped cars with them. We got a, uh, I think we got a Mercury Grand Marquis, an eight-cylinder. My partner goes, you seriously want to go back there and look for this guy? He goes, you're not going to find him. I says, listen, the car was stolen a week ago. He's still fucking holding on to it. He's getting parking tickets all over the place. I says, he's around. His mother lives there. His girlfriend, he's fucking around. Yeah. We go up into that neighborhood. I kid you not, five minutes later, the fucking guy drives past. I go, motherfucker, right? So now now this time, it's like fishing. You want to, you don't want to, you know what I mean? You got to, you don't want to pull too hard. I don't want to get into a fucking chase with this guy. I already seen him ram a shitload of cars and the cars got all dents on the side from the last fucking time, right? So we're staying back about a block. We're watching him and he's talking to guys in the neighborhood. He's a neighborhood guy. You could just tell he's beeping the horn and waving to people and shit. We're sitting back. He pulls into a gas station like two blocks from the local precinct, right? And in New York, some of these gas stations, a guy will come out and put the, the, the pump in for you, right? Some attendant comes out. He hands the guy, you know, what, what's a junkie going to, he's not going to fill up the tank. He probably gave him $2 or $5, you know, just to get around, right? The guy puts the fucking pump in the tank. Right. And we figure, all right, he's not going to pay attention. We slide up behind him, right? He looks up again. I go, motherfucker. Slams the car and drive again. But he's still got the pump hanging out of the side of the car, right? He goes tearing out of the gas station and that fucking pump goes, got bing! Like it comes shooting out and swinging, shooting gas all over the fucking oh, plate. Like if that metal nozzle would have hit somebody, it would have taken their head off. Mm-hmm. We go chasing him again. I think um, down 233rd Street, I think. And we got, we're chasing him. He mounts the sidewalk to get around traffic and he tries to s- squeeze the car between a lamppost and a fence and in New York, you've got these big green boxes that sit on some of these lampposts. It controls the traffic control devices. Mm-hmm. When he tried to squeeze it between that box and the fence, it sheared off the passenger side of the car. Like if there would have been a passenger in there, it would have taken their head off, right? Stops the car in two oh, seconds. Damn. He jumps out. He starts taking his clothes off. He takes off the hat. He takes off the shirt because he knows we're giving his clothing description. I'm yelling at him. My partner r- drives around the block. And um, we caught him in a backyard. So we're cuffing him up and stuff. And I'm like, you motherfucker. I says, I locked you up two, three years ago. And he goes, no, you didn't. I go, you had your wife and kids in the car. And he goes, oh, yeah, you got a really good memory. Yeah, you did lock me up. So and he went to jail. He went away for a couple of years after that because of his record. Nobody really goes to jail for stealing a car in the Bronx. But his record was so fucking bad that they had to do something. Right. God, that's crazy. So that's cool. Man. Uh, yeah, so I mean, well, obviously, you know, car chases just really aren't like they are in TV and the movies. I mean, you start crashing up cars, no. you're going to be on foot. They, it's civil liability. They, the department does not like getting sued. They do not like repairing cars. No, it's not like lethal weapon where you're wrecking cars and they're like, oh yeah, yeah, take another one. No, no. Oh, you're fine. No, that's a, it's a big deal. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, hell. Every freaking jump in the Dukes of Hazard totaled a, one of those gorgeous freaking oh, um, chargers. <laughs> like, yeah. but side note, they had like forty-seven of them, and they kept rebuilding them. Really? So they must have had a full-time garage going, right? <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, for that show, they did. I mean, I I saw something. I can't remember if it was John Schneider talking about it. 
But yeah, dude, they had like 40 or 50 cars. I believe that it. They would just like rebuild after every stunt scene. It was pretty cool. Well, that's cool. So we're only down 40, 45 of them instead of like 300. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like might explain why those vehicles are t- so hard to find because they used them all. But right. <laughs> and here's another fun fact. John Schneider is the only person on the planet that knows the exact color code of the orange that the General Lee is. That is an, that's an interesting you see, in my, my head, I'm full of useless trivia like that. <laughs> it would be on a body so, um, plate, right? On the car. So, okay, we covered. I'm no, sorry? because they actually repainted it. Oh, okay. I mean, from the, the car that they got, they repainted it. That specific orange, dude. And uh, the last guy that painted it gave the code to Bo Duke. And he's like the only one that has it. <laughs> and then that guy died. <laughs> Yeah, well, but, you know, John Schneider has it, but yeah. No, the the guy that gave it to John Schneider, he died. Yeah, <laughs> that's why he gave it to John Schneider. That's a, anyway, that's a, that's know. actually an inter- interesting interesting fact there. Yeah, um, yeah, I'm full of goofy little information like that. <laughs> so we covered we covered homicide. We covered, um, you know, we let, let's let's move into like organized crime now. So. Where I come in with organized crime, people steal cars for a variety of reasons, but mostly vehicles are stolen for the parts. And organized crime in New York mm-hmm. and different ethnic groups were involved in chopping up cars and selling the parts through either through junkyards or body shops. So if you crash your car, say you've got a two-year-old Honda Accord and you take a hit in the front and you bring it to, you get an estimate. And Body Shop A tells you it's going to take two weeks to get it fixed, and you're going to have to pay a $1,500 deductible. And then you go to Body Shop B, and they say, we'll have your car in two days, and don't worry about the deductible. We'll work that out. Where are you going to go? You're going to go to Body Shop B. And the reason you get Body Shop B is able to get you that deal is, as opposed to going to Honda and buying Honda parts, they're going to send out Fast Tony to steal the same kind of Honda or a year or two old, as long as the parts fixed. And Oh, by the way, fast Tony, make sure it's a gray car because <laughs> I don't want to paint it. <laughs> and they go and steal the car and they take the parts off it. And in the old days before Lojack and stuff, the car, the stolen car would actually go into the junkyard or would actually go into the body shop. But then with GPS and tracking and cameras and stuff, what they'll do is the cars are taken apart in vacant lots they're taken apart off the side of a highway in the woods in the back of somebody's house after the car's been swept for lojack. Then those parts are transported to the body shop, and they're slapped on that car. As, fa- as soon as those parts come in, get them on that car. They slap those parts on, and, and they're gone. That makes sense. Yeah. So in New York City, in New York, we were averaging 150,000 stolen cars a year in the 90s. Holy crap. And a lot of those cars were going through... Ma- mafia-controlled body shops and uh, and salvage and junkyards out in Brooklyn and Queens. And each crime family had their finger in the pie. They were all involved in it. Oh, I'm sure. Were you um, were you ever in like any type of a situation where where there was like a war between two crime families or whatever? Did were you ever involved in in investigating that type uh, of there thing? Was a war. There was a war. There was a couple of wars in the early '90s with the um, the Columbos had a war going for a while. Uh, the Bananos had like a little mini war, but that was in another borough. And that was early in my career where I was a patrolman, so I would have had nothing to do with it. When I was working in organized crime, there, there was no wars going on. Were guys getting clipped? Yeah, from time to time, but it wasn't like, you know, one guy is looking to steal the family from, you know, one faction of the family is going against another. That, that did, wasn't going on while I was active. Okay. Yeah, this, this is... This is interesting. I, yeah. I mean, you're you're actually you're the first interview that we've done on this um, on this podcast, and um, I mean, do do you have anything else for you know, like off the top of your head or whatever? Because I mean, I'm I'm not. What do you guys want to hear? I'm not familiar with. Um... Okay, give it. Give us a drop down menu again. <laughs> drop down menu. Uh... Oh, I don't. 
Uh, you got to kind of point me in a direction. Choice. <laughs> um, okay. Okay. Well, you said earlier stuff about morgue stories. You got get Let's hear some morgue stories, even though that's yeah, that's fine. Morbid, so, but hey, why not? When you're in the police academy, they want to. They know you're going to start seeing dead people and getting exposed to death, so they kind of want to give you a taste of it. So. You know, the day, the day before our police academy instructor tells us we're going to the morgue, you know, get ready for it. So that day, we, we it was like a school trip. You know, like you see a bunch of kids on a school trip. They took 20, they took uh, 30 of us at a time. We went down to Bellevue Hospital, which is a big hospital in lower Manhattan. And, uh, you know, I, I, I was expecting to see like an episode of Quincy where there's one slab and one doctor with a lab coat, you know what I mean? It was like a fucking Jiffy Lube. You had like eight slabs, and they were cutting. You know, it was like there was multiple people doing multiple shit, and I mean, Ooh. they've got that uh, pipe cutter. Well, now I, the junkies are using it to um, to steal catalytic converters, and they're sore in the back of people's heads and flipping yeah. their fucking head scalps over their face and oh. between each slab. You've got those old-fashioned produce scales that your mother would ha- like weigh a head of lettuce at the local grocery before buying it. They're weighing yeah, yeah. on, and they're making jokes about it. Like, look at this guy's yeah, fucking yeah. brain, two point three. What a fucking moron! You know, like they're goofing around. They're doing it to get a rise out of us. <laughs> and I mean, there was a couple of people yeah. there that fainted. I didn't, but they gave us some um, Vicks to put under our nose. There was a woman there. She overdosed. She was pregnant. I'll never forget. They opened her up and took the child out and weighed it in the scale. It was just, it was like horrifying. And uh, there was some kid there that was duct taped. I would have been the guy that lost my lunch all over the floor. It was in the morning. I don't know how much I ate, but I remember it was like first thing in the morning. And then um, there was was some kid there that was shot multiple times. He was like duct taped. And uh, the ME had like this tool, looked like a needle nose pliers, and he's just pulling bullets out of this kid and dropping it in a bucket and telling his lackey to write this down and write that down. And you got this detective looking over his shoulder, eating an egg McMuffin and drinking a coffee. And he goes, what do you think? And he goes, suspicious suicide. And everybody started laughing. So you got, I guess you have to have a sense of humor working in the morgue. But uh, it wasn't what I expected. It was, I mean, the New York City morgue, especially, I think each borough has a morgue because I know Manhattan is Bellevue. I think Brooklyn would be Kings County. I think they have a morgue. I know in the Bronx, it was Jacoby for a while. So each borough has a morgue and they're different. Like I had to identify a woman in New York, the responding cops, the first cops on the scene to a homicide the following day, one of them has to go to the morgue and ID the body for identification purposes. And, uh, I, I went down there the following morning. I was up all night doing paperwork and shit with this, this homicide and, uh, skeleton crew and uh i gave the kid the paperwork and he goes into this big refrigerated room and he wheels out a slab and he pulls the sheet off and it's a black guy with a beard i go nope hispanic female and i show him the woman's name he goes oh throws the sheet over the black guy's head wheels him back into the room comes out with another gurney pulls the sheet off it's a hispanic wino i go dude i don't want to see everybody that got fucking whacked in the bronx last (laughs) night i'm looking for this woman i go let me in there (laughs) And in the, at the time, in that particular morgue, it was a big refrigerated room, and it smelled, and it was poorly lit. It was like a horror movie. And uh, I saw my handwriting on a toe tag, and I says, I, I'm guessing that's her. And I pulled the sheet off, and it was the victim from the evening before, and I identified her. But, uh, yeah, that's part of the job. I mean, as far as, you know, I don't think anyone's ever going to – you'd have to be incredibly lucky – to do a 20-year career in the NYPD and not have to deal with that at, at some point, on some level. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> there, was a, there was a story that you told on one of the podcasts that I listened to about, about the, the magician. Magician. <laughs> the, the, yeah, yeah, the, I know what you're talking about. The magician that was upstaging you guys. and You want to hear that story? <laughs> Yeah. I'm down if you don't no, mind. No, okay. Yeah, it's the early 90s. Young cops were going out to cop bars, meeting girls and stuff. And there was this one cop that worked in the next precinct over. He was an amateur magician. 
So we'd be at the bar talking to girls, and he would come over and start pulling the flowers out of his sleeve and the gold coins behind the ear. He's essentially cock-blocking us with magic. So I turned to his partner, who I would later work with years later, and I go, could you get him the fuck out of here? I go, how do you compete with this guy? And this guy, we used to call him cancer because he killed more people than cancer. He said, listen, he goes, if he took took his his NYPD job as, as serious as he did making balloon animals for kids parties. He goes, he'd be the greatest crime fighter in the world. <laughs> so a couple of weeks later, cancer and the magician, they get called out on a calls for help in, in, a, in a basement apartment of a six story walk up. It's on a midnight. They not, there's two doors. They go to door number one, they bang on it. Nobody answers. They go to door number two. My old partner, cancer is going to bang on the door and the magician stops him. He goes, come on. He goes, we made all this noise down here. Our radio's allowed. If anybody called 911, they would have come out by now. Let's get the fuck out of here. He goes to knock on the door again. He goes, come on, I'll buy you a cup of coffee. Let's get the fuck out of here. And they leave. What they didn't know is behind door number two, the super of the building lived there, and he was selling coke out of the apartment. He got addicted to it. He stopped paying his wholesalers. So they sent a couple of hitters to whack him. Now, he knew he had a problem, so he wasn't coming to the door. He was laying low. So what they did was, it's an old gypsy trick. They brought an attractive female. They knock on the door. They put the female's face in front of the peephole. He goes, oh, shit. He opens the door. The three of them bum rush him. They're pistol whipping him. Where's the money? Where's the drugs? He doesn't have an answer. They shoot him in the head. They roll him up in a carpet. They take him out of the apartment because they're in the basement. They roll him up in a carpet. They take him to the the furnace. Mm. And they throw him in the furnace. So while he's going up like a Puerto Rican file oh, on, they go back into the apartment and they're ransacking it. Now the cops are outside. So now they're like, oh, fuck. So these two hitmen tell the girlfriend, listen, this is what we're going to do. If those fucking cops start knocking on the door, just start yelling in Yugoslavian and point to the kitchen. Lead them down the hallway to the kitchen. When you get past this doorway, <laughs> the thresholds of this bedroom, throw yourself on the floor we're going to come from behind. We'll kill the two cops. We'll throw them in the fucking furnace. And we'll get the fuck out of here. Because, I mean, oh, in their mind, crap. we already killed one guy. We got to commit. Yeah. The they don't knock on the now. door. They leave. Yep. So a week later, the super had family. Where is this fucking guy? So they call the police. Our, our relative is missing. The detectives get involved. They see there was a 911 call there last week. They bring in the magician and my old partner and they go, was anything suspicious? Did you talk to anybody? Did you see anything? No, we didn't. We, we were going to knock on that door. We didn't. We knocked on this door. But when we were leaving, there was a car parked outside on a fire hydrant. And we gave it a parking ticket. That was the getaway car. That's how they caught the son of Sam, by the way. So the, they ran the, the plate on, on the car, came back to the female. They brought her in for questioning. She starts giving up the store. And the three of them got locked up for homicide. And then they had to go back to the building in February, shut the heat off for like two, three days until it cooled down enough to get this guy's skull and bones out of there. So that story's in my book. Uh, I think it's NYPD Through the Looking Glass. And that chapter's entitled, Last Night a Magician Saved My Life. Because had he done what he was going to do, be a curious cop and knock on the door, the two of them would have gotten whacked and thrown in, in the furnace. Oh, man. Yeah. You know, I was thinking, um, you know, you're talking about the, putting the, the Vicks under your nose. Why not take take the Vicks Vapor Rub, mix it with coffee grinds, and put, I mean, <laughs> that would really you'd take care odd. of it, wouldn't it? <laughs> you'd, look like you'd, have, you'd look like you'd had a, you'd look like you'd have a waxy mustache. Yeah. <laughs> so? <laughs> Nowadays, cops would be pulling out their phones, snapping photos. They'd be doing hits on you. Oh, forget it. You you don't you don't do stupid shit as a cop because they will take photos of you and it'll be all over the station house. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, I, I'm sorry. I, I the reason I pulled that story out is my daughter was having no, no a little problem, bit of an issue. I had to take care of that. I had already heard the story, so I was. Just yeah, no, that was that was a good story. <laughs> I really liked it. it. Yeah, but I, I was I was thinking about something else too that you said like the like the coroner or whatever will show up eating a piece of pizza and oh, like yeah. all that. Like, I mean, you see that and they do that in TV shows. I'm like, so that actually is a real thing. That's kind of cool. I mean, cause you know, most TV shows just make up stuff and blah, blah, blah. 
But the coroners really do that? Wow. I, I think <laughs> when you see death that often, nothing bothers you. You, you know what I mean? It's like, yeah. I mean, it, yeah. I, I've been, I've had an experience a couple of times since I've been retired with things. And, you know, it, it didn't shock me. You know what I mean? But it was an unpleasant experience for me. Whereas them, they, they, you get numb to something when you see it all the time. It's not a yeah. big deal anymore. You know what I mean? Yeah. When, yeah. When it's your job. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I mean, it's just, just like anything else, I guess. Like when we first started doing this podcast and everything, the fifth, our fifth and sixth episode is a two-parter on BTK. <laughs> and um, we tell people, don't listen to those episodes. <laughs> yeah, <they were> bad. <laughs> but, um, because it's like I wasn't, I wasn't, I hadn't learned how to separate myself from, um, you know, the even though I had heard the story a hundred times before, just there's a difference between hearing right. it and telling it out of your own mouth. So um, I wasn't ready, and I, I was just sitting there by the end of it, I was losing my <laughs> yeah, damn mind. But um, but it was after it was after that I, I I learned how to separate myself from it and i guess you have to you know it's it's the same thing you get, you have to be able to separate yourself from being grossed out by the things that you're seeing and the things that you're having to do to where it's just it yeah. it just goes with the territory yeah, it's your job. and after a while like he said you just you get dumb to it and it's not a thing anymore you know right it's not something you would look forward to doing it's yeah. just it's, it's work i guess i, I got to do that. it it sucks oh. and i'm going to get past yeah, it yeah it's right. work yeah it becomes, you know <laughs> that's your job and you get used to it and yeah i have to do terrible things but it's what i do i noticed that you're drinking out of so a you... uh, raider tumbler there oh yeah that's my team What's in it? Water. Water. <laughs> Too early for me, guys, to cocktail. Oh. <laughs> now, if you had said Bud Light. Bud Light's you... practically water, so. I do fine. like Bud Light, but it's just a little. I just finished a cup of coffee. Anyway, no, I'm, I'm a Raiders fan as well. Are you? So that's well, why. Hopefully, Jimmy Garoppolo will take us to the promised land. Yeah. I mean, I don't really get to watch football as much as I used to, but I, I love the Raiders and the Raider Nation and all that. Yeah, that's just, I don't know. I just enjoy it. So I'm sitting here yeah. with two fans. And we all know who you like by the shirt you're wearing. <laughs> Fucking fish. <laughs> Fins up. <laughs> so anyway. Um, okay, let's let's go. Unless you unless you have something else that you want to um you know to tell, like off the top of your head, Vic. Let's you want to go ahead and yeah, wind this um, down? Again, my name is Vic Ferrari. If you want to check out my books, go to the Amazon book section. Just type in my name. All my books will come up. They're $10 paperback, $2.99 ebook download. And if you want to get a hold of me for an interview, or you got a question or whatever, I'm on Instagram and Twitter at VicFerrari50. And we'll, we'll put all of your links and into the episode description well, yeah. and whatnot. Appreciate um, that. And um, I, got a, I, got a, I got two more questions for you. Okay. I mean, this is just... This has nothing to do with your. Are you going to be at CrimeCon? I'm thinking about it. I, I got to, you know, now that you just brought that up, because I, I, I hadn't thought about that in a while, I'm, I'm thinking about it. I, I got to see what the tickets cost and my schedule and everything, but that would be a good outlet for me. Yeah. Yeah, it would. We're 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 going. We we've, we've already gotten oh, our cool. tickets. I mean, they haven't invited us to be part of Podcasters Row yet, but that'll probably happen next year. <laughs> how much of the tickets? Because <laughs> you know, how much of the tickets, guys? For uh, for Todd? just like the the regular normal weekend ticket was like three hundred and something. A I don't know. I can look it up. Yeah. And then, like, if you want to get like the the ultimate VIP experience, I want to say it was like sixteen hundred dollars. But you know that lets you go everywhere. That would be we, funny we because I've done so many yeah. podcasts. I probably would know a lot of people on Podcasters Row, right? Yeah, you would. And you know, we're, we're they haven't invited us this year. And if they do wind up hearing you know our show and decide to send us an invite before <laughs> September, then we better get a refund <laughs> on our tickets. <laughs> <There you go. laughs> but um, but uh. I have a feeling we'll be invited I to so. next year's because I mean the the way that the way this podcast is growing, um, but I definitely want to have you on again at some point. Sure. But maybe we can cover an an episode like a you know cover a like a, a serial yeah. killer or a cult or something like a case or yeah, whatever, sure. and just get your commentary off of it. Yeah, I'd like not, that. That'd be fun. Sorry, I didn't cool. hear you. 
Yeah, that'd be now fun. that we're all okay. professional and stuff. So we'll. <laughs> <laughs> oh. So um, okay. I mean that was great. I had a I had I had a blast. I mean, you know, I, I like you, Vic. And if you if, we'll stay in touch, and if you if you definitely if if you're gonna be at CrimeCon, let us know. We'll oh, I'll give you that. Heads up. We'll yeah, grab a definitely. drink or something. Sweet. So. And so um, yeah. From 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 me, Todd and and Vic. Um, until next time, later. Cheers, everybody. Thanks, guys.